God, sing of the goodness and the greatness of God. One of the joys about being with the Indian church is they too uh, sing so well and so passionately. Uh, It was a joy to have with me David, and uh, after service at some point following last Sunday, uh, David says to me, "Uh, Dad, I finally found another church that prays as long as you do. (laughs) Well, the little kids have a way of humbling us, you know. It was a joy to be in India and a joy to be back with you today here at Woodlawn. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Psalms, to the Psalms, and we'll look today specifically to Psalm 64, Psalm 64, as we reflect together on the Psalms through the summer. Now, if you've been with us, you're thinking, wait a minute, we're like way out of order, and the answer is, you are correct. You are right. We're backtracking a little bit here to Psalm 64. You might remember from uh, a week ago or two weeks ago that I set in context for us where we were in Psalm 68. Psalm 52 through 59 are a collection of individual laments on behalf of David as he thinks about the enemies that are after him. And indeed, in some ways, Psalm 64 here is a continuation of those laments. But in Psalm 61 through Psalm 64, David casts his care, as the Psalms tell us. He casts his care on the Lord. David knows that there is one place where he can find refuge, and that is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Psalm 65 through 68 are psalms of blessing. David blesses the Lord because he knows that God himself will indeed provide for for David and for his situation. In Psalm 61, to set Psalm 64 in context, in Psalm 64, David is crying out to the Lord that the Lord might bring about the fulfillment of the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God has promised that he will establish through David this kingship that will last forever. And David cries out for that in, in Psalm 61. In Psalm 62, notice what David says. He waits alone for the Lord to fulfill that promise. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. In Psalm 63, David notes that he thirsted for God earnestly as he waits for God to fulfill his promise. 63 verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. And now here in Psalm 64, David expresses this deep confidence in what God will do to his enemies as David waits for the Lord to accomplish, to fulfill his promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. We learn from this text of Scripture today that believers can confidently pray. You and I, those who have placed their faith and their hope and their trust 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can pray with confidence because God has promised us that his justice will prevail. It might prevail today, or it might prevail in a moment when we will never see it. One of the reasons why, and I've expressed this to you on a number of occasions, I love the Psalms, is because they do steady our hearts on the confidence of who God is. For the Psalms remind us that we have a number of experiences in life, and a lot of those experiences in life are moments of great difficulty. And if we don't purpose in our hearts now the goodness and the greatness of God, friend, don't believe that when you face adversity that then you will all of a sudden express confidence in God. I would say to you one of the greatest heartbreaks in pastoral ministry is to see people, you and me, who for years will sit in the context of this church offering prayers and praise to the Lord, but face a moment of adversity and we never see them again. David reminds us that even in adversity, we can have confidence in God knowing his justice will prevail. A story that I was not familiar with until we were in India last week is a tragedy that has been taking place for over 70 days in the country of India in one of the northern states. Um, Some rivalries taking place between some tribes, some Hindu tribes and some Christian tribes. And while we were there last week, over 350 Christian churches have been burned or destroyed. Uh, Christians are having to flee into the woods and hiding. A number of students at the seminary that we were working with were from that, from, from that state. In fact, there was a family there. The entire family had come to southern India to flee the persecution that was taking place in, in their village. And it was sad to see those students be concerned about their own state, their villages. And when they're facing that level of adversity and difficulty, it doesn't seem as though there is any justice that is coming. In fact, you've not even heard of this narrative. The prime minister of India has been completely silent on the narrative. The government, their own government is not providing for them. The federal government, the state government. And we've heard nothing from our government. And David reminds us that truly our help comes only from the Lord. And while we wait for that help, we must rest with a deep confidence in God's timetable and not ours. This psalm breaks out pretty evenly. Psalm 64 verses 1 through 6 You see David crying out for protection. David acknowledges what his enemies 
are doing. And then verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, David expresses this deep hope and confidence in what God will do to his enemies. Notice verses 1 and 2, David prays for protection. Notice the words that David uses as he prays for protection. First, he cries out, hear my voice. A word from the Hebrew Bible that you're familiar with, a plea to ask the Lord to hear his prayer, hear my prayer, same way that Psalm 61, this is a collection of Psalms, Psalm 61 through 64. Listen to how Psalm 61 begins, hear my cry, O God, and and listen to my prayer. David is desiring for God to hear his, his cry, his, his plea. Oh God, in my complaint. And then David uses these two strong words for the Lord to provide protection. Verse 1, preserve my life from the dread of the enemies. And verse 2, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked from the throng of evildoers. We know not specifically what event to which David is referring. A number of events have happened in the life of David. But in some ways, not knowing what specific event this is referring to reminds us that in our, in our lives, in so many ways, we're much like David. We face a number of adversities in life. We face a number of difficulties in life, and David is reminding us of the narrative, regardless of what the situation is, we can always confidently come before the Lord. And this is David's confidence. Notice how it begins, hear my voice, who? Oh God. David casts his care directly upon the one that will hear and respond. And what is David's prayer? Lord, preserve my life. David knew the promise that God had given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. David knew that God had promised to him that through him that God would establish his kingdom and that upon the throne of David, a a king should reign forever. David was resting confident. He knew that God was not finished with the task that he had given him, so he cried out, Lord, preserve my life. From what? The dread of the enemy. It's not fun to be chased by our enemies, is it? It's not fun to have adversity in the workplace. It's not fun to have adversity in the home, difficulty with our children, difficulty with our spouses. In David's case, Saul or Saul's men chasing after him. It was a dreadful time in David's life. So he prayed, Lord, preserve my life. Verse 2, hide me from the secret plots of my enemies. Now, isn't it interesting, David acknowledges that these plots of the enemies seem to be secret, but we're reading about them in the text of Scripture, so guess to whom they were not secret? God. God was not surprised by the plotting of David's enemies, was he? God's not surprised by the adversity that you you and I 
facing life. God is not surprised about what occurs tomorrow in our lives. The enemies of David, you'll sit here just a few moments, they thought that they were being sly, they thought that they were being intuitive, they thought that they were, they were able to, to cover and no one will see them. Well, well God knows exactly what is, is happening. But not only does God know exactly what's happening, ultimately, who are David's enemies plotting against? God. It's not an ultimate plot against God, against David. Yes, they're going after David. They don't like David being the king, so Saul's men like Saul. They've, they've pledged allegiance to Saul for whatever the reason might be. But God has already given his word. God has already given his dictate. Saul would not be the king. David would be the king. So ultimately, these people are not battling against King David. They're ultimately waging war against God. And friends, that reminds you and me that like David, so too our ultimate enemy is not our neighbor. It's not our co-worker. And it's not the enemies of God who are seeking to destroy the churches in Manipur, India. Ultimately, it's a strike against the sovereign reign of a holy God. Yet David knows there's one place that he can find refuge, and that is in God. So he cries out to God for protection. And then notice what David does in verses 3 through 6. He describes his enemies. He's going to tell us what they're like and what they're seeking to accomplish and do. Who are the enemies? Verse 3, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purposes, but literally they hold fast to their evil word. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. They appear pious, David is saying, all the while they are intentionally plotting as the enemies against God. So what seems to be the primary difficulty here? Words. As a kid, we had this little saying, sticks and stones may break my bones. You remember this? But words, that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. Men, has, have, has your wife ever asked you, does this dress make me look fat? And you told her, yes, honey. Those words, they hurt. And you're still paying for it to this day. 
words do pierce. Why? Words have meanings. They communicate something, right? This is what's taking place here in David's life. Yes, possibly David's being chased, but for this specific situation, David is filling the arrows of the enemy's tongues, and this is exactly how David communicates that narrative. The tongue of the enemy is like an arrow that is piercing David's heart. By the way, this is why we get statements from the New Testament that talk about the poison of gossip. It destroys. It's destructive. And this is how David defines what's taking place. Their tongues are like arrows who aim bitter words like arrows. And notice they're shooting from everywhere. They're shooting at at all times. Shooting from ambush at the blameless. They're coming from nowhere. They're shooting at him suddenly and without fear. In other words, those who are ultimately waging war against God have no fear of who God is or what God can do. They hold fast to their evil word, literally from the Hebrew. But notice your English Bibles, most of them translates that purpose. Why might we see them translating the word word for purpose? Our words communicate what? Purpose, intent. How does David know what the people are going to do? Their words are communicating what they are going to do and seek to accomplish. And they wonder, who can see them? And friends, is this not in some ways a perfect capturing of what a heart's posture is before God in sin? Ultimately, this is what we're doing in sin, right? We're saying nobody can see us. I can get away with this. I can accomplish this without anyone knowing. But the text is ultimately reminding us, you and I can plot in secret, we can sin in secret, We can watch in secret, we can talk in secret, and perhaps no one in your sphere of love or influence can know or will know anything about it. But friends, ultimately, it's not your wife that you should be concerned about. It's not your husband you should be concerned about. It's not your boss at work that you should be concerned about, or your friends at church, what they might perceive about you. Ultimately, friends, we serve an audience of one. What does God think about you? What does God think about me? What does God have to say about my actions in the present? Well, for David's case, we don't have to wonder. We see exactly what God thinks. And by extension, it's not only what God thinks about David's enemies, it's what God thinks about our enemies. For David's enemies are our enemies. There's enemies, they're enemies, 
of the gospel of Christ. And look at the confidence that David expresses in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. David expresses confidence that God's justice will prevail. But God shoots, as my translation reads, God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues, turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. They, then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt. Verse 7, David reflects on the actions of God. And in the Hebrew, this word shoots, and your and my translation is an imperative with a while consecutive. I know you have no idea what a while consecutive is, but nevertheless, it seems that David is speaking quite literally in a past tense way, but God shot his arrow at them. See, for David, as he reflects upon his confidence in God, whether the action of God has been an action that already occurred in the past or will be an action that occurs in the future, for David, he knows because of God's word that it is as already done. David knows that God is indeed going to act, and so he speaks of this as something that has happened in the past tense. This is how confident in God, David is that God will indeed carry out his justice ultimately against God's enemies. Do you hear that faith and that hope and that trust and that confidence that David has and what God will do? It's hard, can we just confess this morning and be honest with one another? It's very hard to express this level of confidence when we are the ones who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. At that moment, it's really difficult to see. Perhaps because of our own sin, we're blinded like David's enemies. Perhaps just due to the moment, we're, we're blinded, our, our, our eyes are, are foggy. We can't quite see clearly enough. And yet for David, his trust is completely and solely in God. He speaks as though this is an act that God has already accomplished on his behalf. But God shot. What did God shoot? Now, isn't this interesting? The enemies of God think they're so smart, don't they? They think they're very intuitive. They are ready to shoot their arrows. 
the same way that the enemies of God are plotting against ultimately God is the same means of destruction that God turns around upon them. They're shooting their arrows at David, but notice what God does. God shoots his arrow at them, and what does God's arrow do immediately? It wounds suddenly. There's a sense of finality and exactness when God seeks to execute his judgment. They are brought to ruin. The same instruments that they were using for destruction are the same instruments that God destroys in themselves. Their tongues are turned against them. Verse 9, then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. See, friends, when the righteous see God's execution of justice, there is joy in God's execution of judgment. David is hoping. David is resting confidently that God's justice will prevail and that in that moment it will be a time of great rejoicing. And David shows us what that rejoicing will look like in the conclusion of this text in verse 10. The king, verse 10, the first part, the king will rejoice the righteous one, more than likely is a reflection of David himself as king. The righteous one will rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. David is acknowledging that when he sees God execute his justice, that it will bring about a sense of joy and rejoicing in his life. But it's not only King David that will rejoice. Notice who else will rejoice. Let all the upright in heart exalt the king and the king's people will rejoice in the execution of God's judgment. In fact, this is exactly what we see at the very conclusion of Psalm 63, verse 11. Look back with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, you see this spelled out very clearly. But the king shall rejoice in God. Psalm 64, let the righteous one rejoice. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him, swear by whom? The king shall exult, and the mouths of liars will be stopped. See, friends, for you and me, ultimately, the king who fulfills completely the promise of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is not David. But the king who fulfills that promise ultimately is Jesus. And guess what we learn from the book of Revelation? That this king is coming back and he's going to come back riding on a white horse and that king riding on a white horse will come 
and he will execute perfectly God's judgment against all of God's enemies. Enemies past and enemies present. He will finally display God's justice. And it won't only be a moment of joy for King Jesus, but it will also be a moment of joy for King Jesus' people, you and me. And ultimately, David is pointing my heart and your heart toward that ultimate king, King Jesus, who will fulfill all of God's promises. And this, my friends, is why the New Testament is constantly calling you and me to hope, to trust that this king is coming again and that this king will indeed deliver God's justice. But King Jesus is only going to do for you and me what King Jesus has been doing for God's people throughout history. We go back to the Old Testament, and we see this king always continually fighting on behalf of his people. What happened to the people who plotted to place Daniel in the den of lions? Remember what happened to him? Did David end up affected by the den of lions, or did the people who plotted against David end up affected by the den of lions? Did I say David? Daniel. David and the lion's den. That sounds great. Daniel. What about Haman and Mordecai? Haman made the gallows thinking he was going to hang Mordecai. What happened to Haman? He hung from the gallows. See, friends, what God did for David is the same thing that God has been doing for his people throughout all of history. And it's the same God who, we, who will act on behalf of you and me. Can we see it today? Perhaps not. Can the Christian people living in the mountains of Manipur, whose homes are being destructed, can they see it today? No, they can't. But can they take hope that they will see it? The answer is yes. Will you hope in this same God? Will you trust in this same Jesus? Will you rest in his sovereign control over your life and your circumstances? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope and the confidence that we find in who you are and what you have done and what you are doing on behalf of your people. This morning, as we reflect on our own lives, 
the various circumstances that we face, we ask that you, God, would cause us to express the same hope, the same hope of King David, the same hope of the Word of God. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning, friend, and like David, would you cry out to God? Would you ask God this morning to steady your heart upon him? Would you ask God to increase your faith in him? Would you ask God to enable you to express the same confidence that David had? And perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I'll be honest. I'm disconnected somewhat from this psalm. I don't have any struggles in my life at the moment. Praise God. So would you ask God to purpose in your heart now a steady confidence in Him so that when you do face difficulty, you can respond like David? In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. As we respond to the preaching of God's Word, perhaps you'd like for myself or Pastor Travis just to pray with you. We would delight in praying with you that this same confidence and trust that David had might be true in your life. But friend, you can never have this same confidence apart from Christ. So maybe you're here today and you lack that confidence and it's because you've never trusted in Christ. You've never given Jesus your life. So you have questions about what it even means to, to trust in God, to have confidence in God. We would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in God. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with God. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. As we respond by singing this morning the truth of this song, He will hold me fast. Would you stand with me as we respond to God?